Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 19, Hill vs. Plain. Thankfully, it's been for a good reason. I recently started a new day job, and it's the first paying job I've had in many years that was in something I'm interested in doing. At least it's the first such job that wasn't a one-time gig. Also, I added the first of several genealogies to the website, which will hopefully come in handy now that we're going to be moving through the generations of the family in order now. So far, it's just the family from its earliest documented years to the time of Salvestro and Vieri, but more will be coming as we get further along. Also, I will finally make another tangent episode about vendettas available to subscribers on Spotify and patrons on Patreon soon. I'll send out an announcement about that when the time finally comes. I'll send out an announcement about that when the time finally comes. But as always, you can go to MediChiPodcast.com to check out bibliographies, maps, and more. Now it's time to catch back up with Florence, which had just lost its beloved father, Cosimo de Medici. Something I didn't really get into last time was that while Cosimo was able to cling tightly to power since the general assembly he called under the steely gaze of armed troops, discontent had been simmering in the last years of his unofficial reign. Many of Cosimo's top lieutenants who had helped ensure the government would carry out his wishes, especially Agnolo Acciaioli, Luca Pitti, and Dietzalvi Neroni, all became increasingly critical of the Medici and their tactic of pre-selecting candidates for office, even though they did not dare do anything to act upon their criticisms or voice them too loudly. Part of the reason for their discontent was genuinely political. For starters, there was another economic recession unfolding across Italy by Cosmos last year's. The Ottoman Empire was rapidly consolidating its control over the Balkans and Anatolia, and was starting to reach its long arms into the Black Sea region and the Middle East. So naturally, the Ottoman sultans were threatening Venice and Genoa's colonies and trading outposts in the eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea. What all this meant in practice was that now that the trade networks were dominated by one government for the first time since the glory days of the Roman and Byzantine empires, Europeans trading on those networks, including the fabled Silk Road from China, had to pay higher taxes and tolls. In fact, one long-standing historical theory is that the growing Ottoman monopoly over trade from the East drove European governments to seek alternatives like down the West African coast and across the Atlantic. 
This created opportunities for unscrupulous adventurers, like a certain young Genoese man named Cristoforo, who grew up helping run his father's cheese stand, and whose surname would one day be given to cities and countries that didn't exist quite yet. But that's another story. In the meantime, Florence had been losing ground in the international cloth trade to English merchants, with the Ottoman Empire becoming what we'd call today disruptors to the old silk trade meant that Florence's silk manufacturing businesses were booming. This was great news for the middle class and the rich who already invested in silk manufacturing and workers who specialized in silk production. But it was also awful news for the upper classes whose fortunes relied on the old cloth business, and even more so for unskilled workers since fewer and more specialized workers were needed to make silk. Basically, it was an uneven recession that saw some people ride the waves and others sink, which, of course, is always the perfect backdrop for some old-fashioned political instability. At the exact same time, attitudes toward republicanism were changing in Italy. Humanism and its reverence for Greek philosophy caused Florence's intellectuals and politicians to pay attention to the politics of Plato and Aristotle. And spoilers for those who haven't read The Republic or Aristotle's politics, neither philosopher was all that fond of the idea of just letting anyone get involved in politics. After the government of Venice enacted a series of constitutional reforms that effectively locked anyone who didn't belong to Venice's top families out of most of the government, some in Florence started to rally around the idea that politics should be left just to the members of a hereditary nobility who would naturally be best equipped to run a country. However, as was always the case with Florentine politics, there were also personal motives about. This was especially the case with Agnolo Acciaioli. He had been perhaps Cosimo's most vital ally in those turbulent days of trying to survive the Alberti regime, and the two went into exile together. Besides that, there were genuine friends who shared each other's passion for book collecting and for ancient philosophy. Their political and personal relationship was even sealed when Cosimo's nephew, Pier Francesco, was married to Agnolo's daughter, Laudamia. However, the fundamental problem was that Agnolo expected absolute loyalty, while Cosimo was, let's say, unsentimental when it came to politics. After all, Cosimo felt compelled by necessity to completely break his alliance with the Venetians, the people who arguably did the most to save him from political oblivion. Agnolo should have known that Cosimo would always choose his political needs over any personal obligations. Yet it came as an unpleasant shock to Agnolo when Cosimo went behind the scenes to keep Agnolo's son, Lorenzo, from being appointed to the prestigious post of Archbishop of Pisa, so that Cosimo's cousin, Filippo de' Medici, would get the job instead. 
and the political connections that came with it. The real break between the two old friends, though, came out of an abusive marriage. A relative of Cosimo's wife, Contesina, named Alessandra de Bardi, married Raffaello, another son of Agnolo's. Raffaello immediately proved to be an abusive husband, so much so that Alessandra begged her relatives to intervene. Her family organized a group of armed men who took Alessandra from Raffaello's home in the middle of the night. Neither Agnolo nor Raffaello seemed to really care that Alessandra had run away. Instead, they were upset that her family was claiming her hefty marriage dowry. In the inevitable legal battle, Cosimo stepped in on behalf of his wife's influential family. Honestly, I don't know how Agnolo could know Cosimo so well and not expect this outcome, and understand the reasoning behind it, if not simplifies. Anyway, Agnolo and Raffaello lost Alessandra's diary, and Agnolo was left with a canker sore in his heart. Privately, he called Cosimo and his heir Piero, quote, cold men whom illness and old age have reduced to such cowardice that they avoid anything that might cause them trouble or worry. There are even more dangerous defectors whom the Medici cause. One of them was Dieta Salvi, Neroni, the very man Cosimo suggested should be his heir Piero's chief advisor. The other was Luca Pitti, who besides being a wealthy banker was also one of the most popular politicians in Florence and had been an invaluable Medici ally in the legislature. He was a feeble man in his 60s, but he was still so well liked by the public and his fellow politicians, he would be a useful public face for them. But at some point, the others did reach an agreement that they would take down Luca once the Medici were dealt with. He's probably seen as easy prey even by his so-called allies. After all, as Guicciardini scathingly noted in his memoirs, Luca, quote, Luca had not sufficient brains that Cosimo need fear him. So the bottom line is that it wasn't the most steady of alliances. Still, they did have a lot in common, besides being turncoats. All of them were powerful men from Florence's top families, who had their own support networks outside the Medici orbit. They were also all older men, who surely resented that Cosimo expected them to stay beholden to his sickly son. They were also very patient. When Cosimo died, they didn't act. And instead, Piero took the reins without any serious opposition coming out of the government. Here is a good point to stop and take a look at Piero, who was 48 years old when his father died, and found himself stepping into a role that was meant for his more charismatic and dead younger brother, Giovanni. Piero was born on September 16th, 1460. History would rather unkindly remember him as Il Gotoso, or in English, the Gouty, because while his father and brother also suffered from gout in their later years, Piero had suffered from the disease since he was young. 
In fact, the impression one gets from the sources is that no one expected him to live as long as he did. And if Piero wasn't born the son of Florence's richest banker, he probably would have gone into banking anyway. Or if he was born in more recent times, it's easy to imagine him becoming a math teacher or professor or an engineer of some kind. Probably the best evidence of this is a few sheets of paper found in Florence's historical archives. On these papers, Piero meticulously recorded everyone who was at his father's funeral, how much was paid for candles and torches, how many masses were said, and even how much black cloth the women wore at the funeral, including the four slaves and the price of each piece of cloth. Yet he still inherited something of his father's passion for books, even if he viewed them more as commodities than containers of knowledge. In fact, Piero was also an avid collector of ancient coins. The scholar Antonio Avellino Filarete described the hours Piero spent looking over his collection. One day, he may simply want for his pleasure to let his eye pass along these volumes to while away the time and give recreation to the eye. The next day, then, so I am told, he will take out some of the effigies and images of all the emperors and worthies of the past, some made of gold, some silver, some of bronze, of precious stones or of marble and other materials which are wonderful to behold. The next day, he would look at the jewels and precious stones of which he had a marvelous quantity of great value, some engraved, others not. He takes great pleasure and delight in looking at these and in discussing their various excellencies. Piero's wife was Lucrezia Tornabuoni, who came from an old Guelph noble family that still held considerable wealth and political influence in Florence. Curiously, like her husband, Lucrezia suffered from some lifelong debilitating illness that inflicted her with eczema and arthritis, which drove her to often seek relief at thermal baths around Tuscany. Despite both parents' conditions, they had a relatively large family of four children, not counting Piero's illegitimate daughter, Maria, who was raised alongside his other children. Lucrezia's condition also did not distract her from being active in business and patronage, to a degree that would have been unthinkable to an earlier generation of women. It is true that Piero's mother, Contesina, did support some writers and artists, but not until after Cosimo died. Lucrezia, on the other hand, owned several houses, farms, and shops around Tuscany, and even purchased new shops for herself while her husband was still alive. In fact, Lucrezia had her own clients, including a barber named Andrea Di Francesco, whom she helped in business and legal matters. Besides giving financial support to poets like Angelo Poliziano and Luigi Pulci, she actually wrote her own poetry, songs, prose, and plays herself. Her works included biographies of John the Baptist and the Virgin Mary, sacred songs, and stories and plays about Esther, 
Judith and Susanna from the Old Testament. Of course, the fact she wrote about religious matters perched squarely in the standards of her time. But she was still one of only a few Italian female writers, even in an era that encouraged the education of upper-class women. Also, as the historian Natalie Tomas points out, quote, The women Lucrezia chose to write about were all women who, in some sense, took risks in order to achieve their goals. Susanna defied the elder's sexual advances and risked death in order to preserve her chastity. While both Esther and Judith, respectively, used the supposed positive power of female intercession and the presumed negative power of female sexuality over men to rescue their people. Still, Lucrezia's writings and songs were only shared or performed privately with her family and friends. They were not published for public eyes and ears until years after her death. Going back to Piero, he was an overbearing parent, something he may have learned from his mother. His surviving correspondence with his son Lorenzo is needling and nagging. For example, there is this one letter he wrote to Lorenzo when he was 16. You have arrived at Milan later than I thought, perhaps more than you wished, on account of the delay caused by the honors paid to you by the Duke at Ferrara. I have written to thank him, and to say we are his debtors, and also to Giovanni Bentivoglio, I have sent thanks, etc. You are to follow the advice of Pigello and his written instructions. 1. Be careful not to worry the Duke. You will have enough of that with this marriage. 2. You are to consider yourself as a servant and as belonging to the household of His Excellency, and to ask Pagello's advice as to what visits to pay and what to say. Remember to be civil and alert, act as a man, and not as a boy. As a modern biographer of Lorenzo de' Medici put it, quote, Piero's letters alternatively exhibit pride in his son's precocious ability and an almost neurotic need to interfere in the smallest details of his conduct. No wonder, one time, in response to one of his father's letters, Lorenzo fired back with, quote, I wrote to you two days ago, and for this reason I have little to say. But bossing around his son was one thing. Dealing with other people was another. As his own father shrewdly observed, Piero was a better banker than he was the leader. Case in point, Piero had given his brother-in-law, Giovanni Tornabuoni, a job at the Rome branch of the Medici Bank. The bank's manager wrote to Piero, complaining about Giovanni's job performance, and sourly noting, quote, This company used only to promote those who deserved it and paid no attention to family connections. Giovanni also wrote to Piero, accusing his boss of trying to undermine him. Soon, Piero bowed to pressure from his wife's family, fired the manager, and gave Giovanni the manager's old job. Now, to be fair, soon after he was named the new manager, Giovanni did work out a lucrative deal with the papacy over investments in an alum mine that had been recently discovered in the Papal States. So, 
maybe he wasn't all that unqualified. But from the start, Piero rarely left the Palazzo de' Medici due to his illness, causing important political and diplomatic meetings to take place in the comfort of his home. Nothing could have better vindicated the critics of the Medici and their claims that the Medici were the greatest threat to the Republic Florence had seen in centuries. Also, at the same time, Piero was deprived of an invaluable ally. The Duke of Milan, Francesco Sforza, passed away. This death clearly unnerved Piero, who wrote in a letter to his son Lorenzo, quote, I am in such affliction and sorrow for the sad and untimely death of the illustrious Duke of Milan that I know not where I am. You can imagine what it means to us both in private and in public matters. So it is perhaps no surprise that Piero leaned heavily on Neroni for support and advice, just like his father wanted. Right away, Neroni convinced Piero to call in all the Medici Bank's debts in Florence. Just as Neroni likely intended, this was a catastrophic decision that worsened the recession and even drove several Florentine businesses into bankruptcy. After this, the growing anti-Medici party, with Luca Pitti as their representative, started operating in the open. Florentines in the note began to talk about the Party of the Plain, so named because of the Palazzo de Medici's position on Flatland, and the Party of the Hill, likewise named after the fact that the Pitti Palace was located on high ground, just across the Arno River from the Palazzo de Medici. As soon as 1465, a year after Cosimo's death, the Party of the Hill scored a major victory. They defeated a bill Piero supported that would have extended the judicial powers of the Auto di Guardia, the police force that the Medici had created. Next, they pushed through a major reform that ended the practice of screening candidates for office and instead let all eligible citizens be selected. The bill had so much public support that Piero had no choice but to sign off on it. Then that October, a member of the Party of the Hill, Niccolò Sadarini, was chosen as Gonfalonieri. Like much of the Party of the Hill, he was a former Medici supporter. He had even been saved from a death sentence by Cosimo when he was charged with plotting the assassination of Niccolò de Ozano, a leading conservative under the old Alberti regime. Sadarini was a well-known political agitator beloved for speaking out against the excesses of the rich in a time of economic decline. His tenure started out with such high expectations that at the Palazzo della Signora, a crowd crowned him with an olive wreath after he gave a well-received speech promising to restore the Republic's old election practices. However, Sardini pushed too hard and too fast. Soon enough, he was seen as not just a threat to the Medici, but a demagogue trying to destroy the entire political order. The party of the Hill had to step in to put Sadarini back in line, making most of his term a waste of time. His own brother, Tommaso, remarked that Niccolo went into office like a lion, and left like a lamb. Indeed, while he went into office with a crown, 
he left with graffiti painted onto the walls of the Palazzo della Signora, reading Nine Fools Out. Taking the place of Niccolo Sadarini and the other priors for a solidly pro-Medici government, the party of the hill immediately went on the defensive, claiming that the candidate selections were rigged. But their own bill had eliminated the Medici's only real instrument for putting their supporters into the Signora, so few took the accusation seriously. Instead, Sadarini's failure to enact any kind of constitutional reforms, despite promises to do so, had discredited the party of the hill worse than anything Piero had done or could do. Up to this point, Piero's enemies had acted constitutionally. Then, on the morning of August 27, 1446, Piero was returning to Florence from a rare trip out to the family estate at Careggi. Suddenly, a messenger on horseback caught up with Piero and his retinue. The messenger had a letter from his son Lorenzo, who was still in Florence. The letter warned that the leaders of the party of the hill, whose ranks now included no one other than Piero's own cousin, Pier Francesco, had hired mercenaries to ambush Piero on the highway back to Florence in order to either kidnap him or kill him. Lorenzo had seen the roadblock that had been set up to ambush Piero, but luckily no one recognized him. Piero got off the main highway and took the back roads back. He also called on his supporters to arm themselves and to come out to protect him as he made his way back to the city. It was now time for Piero de' Medici to earn his inheritance. Thank you.